Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Director of Marketing. Our goal here is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So Andrew, these last couple days, we've enjoyed having our online instructors together with us in Oklahoma. It's huge. It's like this big family reunion and there's a lot of us now. Yes. This thing has been growing like crazy. Almost, I wasn't even aware. 15. We have 15 instructors. instructors yes. 700 some students. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And a lot of them are people I've known for a long time. Right. We're and all I... getting old together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that a lot, a lot of times when you travel, you run into the students that are having you and these instructors as our teachers. Right, yeah, we have the combination of watching the video and then the live classes with the fix it built in and a lot of feedback. And one of the things I know the students and and their parents in particular appreciate is the time, the level of detail that is put into the marking of papers and the individual coaching on papers by this very dedicated intelligent, competent team of friends. Yes, exactly. So we've invited the instructors to ask you, now some of these questions are their questions, some might be from their parents, some might be from their students. I think the first one is from their students. Hi, Andrew. I'm Miss Fisher. I am the Level A instructor. And my students constantly tell me that you are so funny. And some of them want to know where you get your material and who was the funny person that influenced you in your life? Well, I just steal jokes wherever I can. Uh, Any joke I actually make up myself usually flops, but the trick is to find, you know, a joke and practice it up a little bit. Uh, Also, there's just an element of wordplay that comes in. I think being a, a word guy, and I've always have been, you kind of have that natural appreciation for wordplay. But I can't say there's been one particularly you know, effective source or inspiration. The great thing about practicing humor is that you get immediate feedback. If you try something that you think is funny, it is pretty clear immediately by the reaction of the people if it is or it isn't. That way you can refine yourself. And you say, well, that did not work, so don't do it again. And then sometimes you say something you didn't even know was funny, and you think, aha, there's a keeper. So it's gradually, I think, like any kind of skill or talent people can develop. Um, Garrison Keillor basically said, you know, telling jokes is a useful thing. Anyone can learn to do it. Anyone can get the knack of it. And for most people, it's far more useful than trigonometry. (laughs) Thank you. Hi, Andrew. This is Pamela White. I teach Level C, and I am the author of Fix It. And I have a non-grammatical question for you. I'm curious to know, how have your feelings changed over time about the online classes that we offer? Well, I originally didn't 
like the idea because I knew I didn't want to do that. Um, I really don't like staring at screens very much. I do it when I have to, but I thought originally it would be kind of impersonal and distant. And you have to look at people and see them in the eye and see if they smile and laugh at your joke or not. You, you know. But uh, over the years, as we started very experimentally and expanded it gradually, and I've been able to observe that there's actually almost a higher level of interaction in certain ways over online classes. So I feared the problem is people wouldn't be able to respond. But in a live class, you know, everybody raise their hand, you know, one or two people get to talk. In an online forum, everyone can type in answers all the time. So it's almost a higher level of individual participation, far more than I would have expected from when the platform was kind of new to all of us. And I've experienced that with the, the teacher training and the, the parent webinars that I do as well. Um, in terms of its effectiveness, there's no doubt. I, I can't go to a conference, I can't go to a city uh, and teach kids and see kids and not one or two or 10 of them will come up to me in the, in the process of the day or days I'm there and say, oh, I'm in the online class with Mrs. White or anyone, and it's so good. Or the parents will come and say, oh, I'm so grateful for your online class. I've got you know, kids different age. I've got this problem, that problem. It, that's so wonderful to help me you know, see that there's consistency and outside accountability for my child in the class. So uh, the efficaciousness is unquestionable. It works, it works well. Um, evidently, you all enjoy doing it, which I find that a little hard to believe, but then there's some people who love sitting around to the wee hours of the morning talking about grammar questions as well. So. Hard to believe, but yes, we do. Thank you. Hi, Andrew. I'm Kim Murphy, and I teach level B online. And my question is, one of the common mistakes that I find students making is confusing the strong verb and the quality adjective. They know the tests, but for some reason they confuse them. Do you have any hints that might help them? Well, you know, as I do on the student video, you know, if you can put the word between the and a noun, you've got an adjective 99% of the time. If you can stick it after I or it and it makes a sentence, you've got a verb. So that's the, the best test I've found, and I think it works you know, 80% of the time. The problem is English, not the kids. Right? The problem is it's a non-inflected language, and so words that we use, we can use as different parts of speech, and if you just look at it, you wouldn't know what it is. Take, for example, the word golf. Right? It could be a verb, we golf every day, it could be a noun, golf is boring. It could also be an adjective, get in the golf cart. So you can't look at the word golf and know what it is. You have to be able to parse the sentence. I even had a very skilled high school student, you know, very advanced writer, just recently use the word journey as a noun in a sentence, but underline it and check off a strong verb. So it can happen to anyone, uh, and it's just, you know, something you just work with and work with. I guess what I would suggest is the best thing would be for students to study an inflected language, one where the verbs and nouns change endings according to how they're used. 
So a language like Latin or French or even Japanese, you look at the word and you say, well, that has to be a verb. It couldn't be anything but a verb because it has a verb end to it. We don't have that so much. And in English, our verbals get really tricky because, well, it was a verb, but you stuck an ing on it. Now it's not a verb. Well, how does it go from being something to not being what it was? Um, and then, depending on how it's used, it could be an adjective, it could be a gerund, it could be a participle. So I think the trick isn't to think we're going to fix this forever, but to just make progress little by little and just explain it one more time and say, let's do the test and try to help them parse the sentences. Maybe if some of them have uh, you know, a little more, say, diagramming type of experience, that might help them. I think, honestly, I think Latin or French is the best way to go if you want to understand better um, the inflections of words. And then that translates into English more easily. Thanks. Okay, good. Thank you. Hi, Andrew. My name is uh, Kathy Flowers, and I teach Level C. Some of the parents are considering online education and online classes. How are the online classes different than the DVD lessons? Certainly, the DVD is, is somewhat limited in what it can do. It can present information, but it can't engage the children in, in any kind of truly interactive way. I mean, I have had parents say, oh, my my child talks to the TV, you know, they raise their hand when you ask a question. But in terms of having a conversation, that's just not possible. So then it falls on the parent to do that, to facilitate the conversation, the in-between lessons, because, you know, the way the, the video courses are set up is there's a lesson, and then there's a few more just like that, and then a new unit, and then a few more just like that. So in the online class, you get conversation about all those in-between lessons that aren't included in the, in the video production. And then, of course, the big thing is, as I mentioned, you get to mark those papers. So you get to give the students the concrete feedback. And I think that's probably what people most are wanting. Uh, and I have a lot of people who walk up to me and say, you know, my English is just not that good. Or maybe it's English is their second language as a, a mom. And I just don't know. I'm just not confident correcting my kids' papers. So what do I say? You know, I usually say something like, well, see if you can find someone who can. Uh, a friend or a relative, you know, a retired English teacher that you sat next to at church, you know, someone. But they're very often desperate for help that way. So I think that you're providing such a high level of, of precise feedback is really a blessing to those families, particularly the parents who just don't feel confident themselves. Thank you. Hi, Andrew. My name is Jenny Lennon, and I teach Level A. And I would like to ask your thoughts on what you would do if all the dress-ups were placed in one sentence so that they would not have to worry about dress-ups anymore for the rest of their assignment. <laughs> well, I would point you back to the principle process, not product. You know, it's very easy for us to look at some student writing and think, oh no, what are we going to do about this? When what you really need to realize is they're just in this process here. And, and I even remember going through it myself, where you start and you're like, okay, I got to do all this stuff, so I need to do as much of it as possible, as soon as possible, so I get it all done by the end of the paragraph. I remember that, you know, in Gruard with Webster and 
kind of saying, yeah, I got four dress-ups in one sentence. Now I can breathe a little bit. Um, so I think everyone kind of goes through that. It's more common, perhaps, with the boys who will engineer things, and you know they will just figure out how to get everything in as few words as possible, and that's a great skill. And we're not going to judge the the middle of the process as the product, as the final, as the result, as the goal. What we do is we say, okay, uh, here's this tendency. They want to get this stuff in so they can relax a little bit. What happens after a while, and I'm sure you've had uh, students who've done this too, is they get to a point where like, that's easy. I mean, you can always put a dress up here or there. You've got a whole paragraph and only five or six to do. That's, you don't panic, you know. And if you get to the end, you're missing a quality adjective or you need to stick in a who, which, you know, okay, you can edit that. So I understand both the cause and I understand that it's just a maturity kind of grow out of it. Uh, what we as teachers want to do is not, we don't want to criticize something that isn't needing to be criticized. You could say, wow, you got all dress-ups in the first sentence. Tremendous. You don't have to do that. You know, you can stretch them out through the paragraph, but you know, all power to you. So that kind of conversation I think is helpful. Right. Hi, Andrew. I'm Robin Osborne. I teach uh, Level B. My students love Unit 3, Retelling Narrative Stories, but sometimes they have trouble identifying the conflict. What's the best way to figure out the main conflict? It's a, it's a great question, and uh, stories are so different. And so the, the challenge of the story sequence chart is to be a tool that is generally or universally applicable flexible enough to deal with any type of story, but then at the same time to have enough specificity to help get the content down on the page. So it, it has to be both focused and broad at the same time. I think it does a good job of that, but uh, I run up against this uh, in the teaching, writing, structure, and style. Uh, one story is the fox and the crow, and the crow has the cheese, and it's obvious that the problem, the conflict, is the fox wants the cheese. So what does he say, what does he do to accomplish getting the cheese? He flatters the crow, distracts her, begs her to sing, she opens her mouth, cheese falls. Conflict is solved. The object is acquired. Another story we do in the TWS is the bat and the nightingale. Right. So the bat is busy catching mosquitoes, and the nightingale is uh, kind of a cocky, virtuoso kind of prima donna soloist singer for the emperor and his court. Their conversation goes kind of like this. The nightingale says, well, what do you do? You're just, you just eat mosquitoes. You know, I sing for the emperor. The bat says, well, I'm important too. And she says, ah, what's important? No, I don't see anything important you do. He says, well, without me, you'd have no audience. The emperor wouldn't come. And she says, well, that's ridiculous. He comes to hear me sing. So the bat goes on strike, right, sits out, Mosquitoes attack the emperor, emperor leaves, Nightingale is left without an audience, and then she realizes, ah, you know, he's got an important job too, and only by working together will we have peace and harmony on the river Lee. So that's a harder thing. What's the problem? Well, some people come and say, well, the Nightingale is cocky. Okay, but that's not really a problem because she could continue to be cocky. There's no problem to be solved unless 
the bat has a problem with her being cocky. So then you kind of have that little discussion. Where's the conflict? Well, the bat wants the nightingale to be different, or the nightingale wants the bat to be different. So that's the key question, I would say, is you ask who in the story wants something to change? Who wants to effect a change in the circumstance? Who wants to change the status quo from what it is to something different? Sometimes it's obvious. The situation is the crow has the cheese, the fox wants it. In this case, you have to decide uh, how do you want that to go. I would interpret it as the bat feels a need to teach the nightingale the truth, maybe about his value in self-defense, or maybe he wants to help her realize she's walking the dark side of pride and and arrogance, and this will destroy her soul. So she needs to see the truth for her own benefit. You could make him into a very sacrificial character. And the interesting thing is he has to make a sacrifice to affect the change. He has to fast. He has to sit out. He has to give up dinner, right? Suffer the pangs of hunger to teach her the truth of life. So uh, ask that question. Who in the story has a want or need for something to change? Uh, we have the, stun, the story, uh, the miller, his son, and the donkey. You know this one? So they, they're going to town to sell their donkey, and some, someone says, well, why don't you ride the donkey? You're stupid if you don't ride. So the miller puts the boy up there. They keep going, and someone says, why you have the boy on the donkey? You should let your, your poor old man ride. right? And so takes the son off, miller gets on. They go a little bit further, and someone says, well, that's horrible. The boy's riding and the poor, and the, or the father's riding and the poor boy can hardly keep up. You should both ride the donkey. So he put them both on the donkey. And then someone, really crass, says, that poor donkey shouldn't be carrying two of you. You could better carry it than them, you. Right? So they get off the donkey, tie it up, hoist it up on their shoulders, carry it across the bridge. The donkey breaks the ropes, falls in the river, and well, you can choose to kill him or not. But what's the problem there? What's the one or need? Well, there's all these people who have these opinions, and you could say, well, they want that. But what, what, at the core of it, what does the miller want? He wants to do what people say. He wants to avoid conflict. He wants to avoid criticism. He, he wants to make everyone happy. And what happens when you try to do that? Your donkey dies. <laughs> so that, that's probably the best way to go. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's really obvious, too, you know. What do we want? We want to get rid of this blasted little magic ring, you know. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, Andrew. My name is Elizabeth Brussels, and I teach Level C. And I would like to know, what is your favorite style tool and why? Ooh. How far are we allowed to go here? Are we limited to... Dress-ups and openers, are we... All I teach level C, so all style tools. Mm -hmm. Well, it's kind of like saying, you know, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? I mean, you're in a different mood. Some days it's coffee, and other days, you know, maybe it's mint chip. I, you know, it's hard to say. I, I do think that my favorite style technique is the one that works best in the situation. 
So, you know, you, you have this opportunity for this alliteration. And it's not going to sound contrived. It's not going to sound labored. It's just going to slip in on the person. And you're like, oh. But then another time you could look at alliterations like, I can't even think of a way you could possibly do this without wrenching a word completely out of proper use or context. So um, probably I think the generally acknowledged by most who teach rhetoric, the mother of all, of all figures of speech is metaphor. And so if our students can experiment with metaphor and its little sister simile and gradually get comfortable, and, and at first they can sound pretty awkward, um, but that's where you get the expansion of thought. The reason we use metaphor and simile is because it helps us understand something better. So when you say something is like this other thing that it is not like, then we understand both of those things better by comparing them. So from a thinking development point of view, um, I guess I would have to go with, with metaphor and simile. And then from a technical point of view, I think kids just really kind of reach a new level of literate writing when they master the number four sentence opener and its variations. It's the least colloquial. It's the one we are least likely to use in conversation. Therefore, it sounds the most literary. So when the kids start to do it, yeah, they can have awkward or clumsy, but once they refine it and they get the, you know, the basic ING, and then you can teach them about the, the invisible ING, and then show them how the ED or the, the past participle and present participle is all very similar, and they get that little repertoire of number four options, and they put one of those in every paragraph, that really, I think more than anything, makes that writing stand out, especially to you know, their other teachers or college professors who don't actually know anyone ever taught that to them. They just think, wow, this kid's naturally brilliant. Hi, Andrew, I'm Cinda Tribble, and I teach level A. And I have some students who love IEW so much, and they love the dress-ups as soon as they catch on they figure out that it makes their writing so much better that they put in a million L-Y words and quality adjectives in one paragraph. Should I limit them or should I allow them to explore? Well, if your students are putting a million L-Y words in one paragraph, you definitely should limit that. But I understand the question. Uh, as I have said in the teacher training course many times, these techniques are kind of like toys. So here's your new toy. Well, what happens? You watch a kid and they get a new toy and they want to play with it all the time because it's a new toy. And then after they've kind of exhausted the range of possibility to some degree, then their interests shift and they put that aside and maybe pick it up once in a while, but it doesn't become the obsession that it once was. So keep that in mind. The truth is, yes, you as a teacher have the power to dictate rules if you need to change something, right? Um, I'm not sure that I would say you can only have, you know, two of each or whatever because there might be times when you wanted more, but you can make a rule. Otherwise, I would just kind of coach them and say too much 
of a good thing can be not a good thing. You know, too much ice cream, you'll get sick. Too much jewelry, you'll start looking goofy. Too much makeup, you're not pretty anymore. You know, I would particularly use that one in my own, you know, list of examples. Um, but uh, I recall Webster telling me one time that he had this problem with some students. They would learn the when, while, where, as, since, if, although. They would learn the adverbial clause starters there, and then they would always use the same one. You know, every sentence, every paragraph would be while, 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 while. And he would notice this, and then he would write them a little note and say, in your next paper, you may not use while to try to force them to experiment with some of the other things. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a temporary injunction. It's not a, a permanent change of policy. And, and, you know, we have had criticism from people who say, oh, well, IEW teaches a a flowery writing system, which isn't good writing. Well, we understand this is not really a problem. Um, I've addressed it a couple ways. One way is our job as teachers of children, particularly at the earlier level, is to build the linguistic marble. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get them to learn more words and practice using and get excited with more words. We want them to fall in love with words. That's the part of the process we're at. Then. When they grow up, someone can carve that marble into whatever, a technical writer, a journalist, we don't know. Um, I, I have a friend whose two boys were very reluctant. They went through the whole thing. They did great, and now they're both technical writers for two, uh, one for Microsoft, one for Google. And so they, they were carved into being able to communicate um, that way. But think about it, if no one overused adjectives, we never would have gotten that book, whatever the title is, Alexander's No Good, Horrible, Awful, Miserable, Rotten Day. I, you know, it's a charming book with a charming title, but it's, it's an extent, you know, it's obviously an extreme use of a technique for a particular purpose. So let's not be too worried about where our, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old kids are at in terms of that process of building that, that marble of language. Uh, and playing with the stuff we give them. Hi, Andrew. I'm Denise Kelly, and I teach Level B. And I have some students that would like to know what you like to do in your free time when you're not teaching writing. <laughs> <laughs> well, for about the past six years, I would have answered study Latin. Um, but I'm not teaching Latin this year. I've got my, my students are now better than me, so they met the the edict of Suzuki, you know, student must become better than teacher or both have failed, so I have success. I would say now I've moved fully into grandpa life. And where I live, I have four with one more on the way, grandchildren nearby. Uh, one's a four-year-old boy, one's a three-year-old boy. And so any spare time I have that I'm not working, I'm usually, hey, Grandpa, let's play. Grandpa, go outside. Grandpa, swing. Grandpa, do below. Grandpa, read to me. Grandpa, you're not with me. <clears throat> so that's probably the major hobby I have. So, uh, Denise, before you walk away here, um, you are actually the director of all the online classes. You get to have the opportunity to help all the instructors. You get to know all the details. And you obviously like doing this because you're still doing it. So what do you like the most about teaching online classes? 
Well, I'm not sure that I could say the most, but putting them all together, I love the online department because I love working with the teachers that we have. They are excellent at what they do. I love getting to know the students because it's amazing to me that we get to know the students as well as we do with it being online platform. And of course, um, because our program works so well, I love watching the students learn to love words and learn to love writing. And we see that constantly as we go through the year. They improve. And very close as well, because you, you scrutinize the papers. Yes. So you, yes. you see the, the micro steps of growth and development that happen. And then, of course, the big picture. I guess I wish, you know, if I could tell all the online teachers one thing is I wish you could be out at the conferences and hear what I hear, the profound gratitude that the families have for the work you're, you're doing. So pass that on to all the team. I will do that. Thank you. So for our listeners, if you are interested in learning more about our online program, simply go to IEW.com slash online. You'll find all sorts of answers to questions you might have, such as how involved are the parents needing to be, what type of materials you need to purchase, because the online classes do require that you purchase the video training course along with the live instruction and the Fix-It Grammar program. That's a part of our online classes, as well as prices and all kinds of other frequently asked questions. So we start taking registration for next year in April. So early April, there's actually an interest list on our website where you can sign up to get notified when our online classes open up, when the registration opens up. And I will say that they fill pretty quickly. Sometimes some of our classes fill within the day that we open. So um, starts registration starts in April and ends when the classes are filled. And oftentimes we have long waiting lists. But we do want to be very careful about who we choose as instructors. This is the best of the best that we have teaching for us. And we also want to be sure that we're not putting too many kids in their classes because all that paper grading that's required. Yeah, so. I, we have the Navy SEALs <laughs> of writing instructors. Yes, that's we do. That's who we have. And, we won't compromise quality. Exactly. And, you know, for, I would say, years and years, people were asking for us to offer online classes. And on behalf of all of those families, I thank you, Andrew, for allowing us to provide this service to these few families. Thank you. It's been fun. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Poudois and the team at IEW, I thank you for the privilege of allowing us to partner with you on this educational journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking.